That uh, bumper music with which we uh, just began, of course, is what we start every show with. And it's probably time to mention, which we never have gotten around to, that that is actually a musical production of our own, Edward McMillan, the producer of this program. The song is called King of the World. That's King of a World. That song is called King of a World, and it is actually available on Mr. McMillan's CD, Monkey Sutra. And no, that is not Plugola, because I don't get anything for mentioning it. <laughs> as far as I know, that CD is not even available, is it? In very limited form. In, in very limited form. At any rate, I think that is worth mentioning uh, in conjunction with the item I'm about to read you, and also the fact that KDVS prides itself on going out of its way to bring you non-commercial musical endeavors. This is something that we in the public affairs department of this radio station agree with wholeheartedly. We know that a lot of you listen to this radio station because you're going to get the kind of non-commercial products that, uh, you know, just are not available in very many other venues. We do not necessarily agree, however, with the hit we took a few weeks back when we used U2's Vertigo as bumper music, and in doing so, apparently... uh, generated some negative reactions. It, it surely is a commercial uh, a piece of music, but as to whether it's bad, well, we say degustibus non est disputandum. In other words, how much you like something isn't really a matter for disputation. Of course, what do all of us love arguing about all day long? How much we like something. At any rate, we do wish to burnish the credentials of our own producer, Mr. McMillan, as an artiste, and thereby introduce the following article, which came from The Week magazine. Painters, poets, and brooding musicians really do have more sex than the rest of us. While artists have long been associated with active sex lives, new research backs up the impression. A British study of 425 professional artists found that creative people have up to twice the average number of sexual encounters as others. According to Daniel Nettle of Newcastle University, talking to Reuters, he said that it could be that very creative types lead a bohemian lifestyle that tend to act more on sexual impulses and opportunities, often purely for experience's sake, than the average person would. This study also found the number of sexual partners increase as creative output went up, perhaps because more productivity can mean more acclaim, which enhances their allure. It's no coincidence, researchers said, that the likes of Pablo Picasso, Lord Byron, and Dylan Thomas had famously active sex lives. They illustrate some of the phenomenon quite well, said Nettle. Lots of acclaim and lots of women. Mr. McMillan wishes me to note at this point that he apparently is so far an exception (laughs) to this trend. And furthermore, refuses to classify himself as an artiste. All right, of course, a couple days ago, uh, Sam Alito uh, has... uh, gotten onto the United States Supreme Court. I don't feel like talking about that today. But how about this little item? Conservative 
commentator, that should be put in quotes, commentator Ann Coulter, speaking at a traditionally black college, joked in Little Rock, Arkansas last week that Justice John Paul Stevens should be poisoned. Coulter told the Philander Smith College audience that more conservative justices are needed on the Supreme Court to change the law on abortion. Stevens, of course, is one of the court's more liberal members. We need someone to put rat poisoning in Justice Stevens's creme brulee, Coulter said, adding, that's a joke for you in the media. Coulter, of course, has made a career out of such stunts. As far as I'm concerned, anyone that invites Ann Coulter to give them a talk you know, deserves what they get. Uh, at one point, the audience booed when she cut off a couple questioners saying, I'm not going to be lectured to. She drew a more booze when she said the crack cocaine problem, quote, has pretty much gone away, unquote. And, and speaking of manipulation of the press, how about this item that uh, was circulated a couple weeks ago from the Washington Post Glenn Kessler article? Terror leak on bin Laden phone may be a myth. President Bush asserted a couple weeks ago that the news media published a U.S. government leak in 1998 about Osama bin Laden's use of a satellite phone, alerting the al-Qaeda leader to government monitoring and prompting him to abandon the device. This appears to be, at best, an urban myth. Bin Laden's communication to aides via satellite phones had been reported in 1996, and the source of the information was another government the Taliban, which ruled Afghanistan at the time. The second time a news organization reported on the satellite phone, the source was bin Laden himself. Now, apparently it is true that bin Laden turned off his satellite phone in August of 1998, but uh, causal effects are noted to be hard to prove. Uh, The fact that the day earlier the United States had fired dozens of cruise missiles at his training camps, missing him by a few hours may in fact be the root cause. I I know when I bring you this information that some of you are shocked, shocked to find out that information originating from the Bush White House may be suspect. And an item from the Sacramento News and Review, December 22nd issue from Sonia Siani, Cosmo Garvin, and Jeffrey Barker, uh, they noted that members of the U.S. Congress were shocked last week to learn that George W. Bush had authorized secret warrantless wiretaps and email eavesdropping inside the United States as part of the so-called War on Terror. These, uh, the News and Review noted that a week ago, MSNBC released excerpts from the Department of Defense documents which showed the Pentagon is keeping tabs on anti-war groups around the country. Among those were local protesters who have picketed the military entrance processing station over the last year. And uh, the document apparently lists the nonviolent protest at MEPS as a, quote, credible threat, unquote. They reported that George Maine, an organizer with the local chapter of Veterans for Peace, said he was not surprised his group made the list. He said the group has long been aware of, quote, people who come to our meetings that don't quite belong, unquote. And he believes his home phone has been tapped for more than a year. They shouldn't be doing it, but we're not doing anything wrong or illegal. I guess the fact that they're doing it means that we're doing something right, said Maine. Now, it was noted some time back, in fact, I have an article here from the fall 2003 issue of On Earth from the Sierra Club, uh, asking the question, uh, when is a vandal a terrorist? 
And the answer was, when he's also an environmentalist. They noted that in June of 2000, 22-year-old Jeff Lures torched three shiny new pickup trucks at a Chevrolet dealership in Eugene, Oregon. He was protesting America's excessive consumption of oil. In a rather stupid way, I might add. But for this stunt and a botched attempt to burn an empty gasoline truck, Lures, who was a first-time offender, was sentenced to 23 years in prison. You should add that nobody was injured in any of these incidents. Well, the war on terror has given the U.S. Justice Department uh, an excuse to, uh, to, <laughs> to go after uh, environmental activists, accusing them of eco-terrorism. In fact, uh, last week, the Justice Department announced a 65-count indictment against 11 environmental activists. Apparently, these suspects uh, are alleged to use homemade incendiary devices from milk jugs, petroleum products, and timers to start fires at such places as the Bureau of Land Management's Wild Horse Facility, U.S. Forest Service ranger stations, meat processing companies, lumber companies, um, high-tension power lines, and evidently a Colorado ski facility. Terrorism is terrorism, no matter what the motive, said FBI Director Roger Mueller. The FBI is committed to protecting Americans from crime and terrorism, including acts of domestic terrorism in the name of animal rights or the environment. I must ask you, do you think that someone who ignites a milk jug uh, full of, uh, you know, kerosene at a ski facility should be treated the same as someone who hijacks an aircraft? Now, suppose you belong to an environmentalist group and, and some uh, zealous or overzealous uh, members go out and commit a crime. Does that make you part of a terrorist organization? All right, and we have an item here uh, from bradblog.com about some goings-on here in Yolo County and, and some of the shenanigans going on with voting in this country. This is a subject near and dear to our hearts, and apparently it's near and dear to the heart of Brad Friedman, who uh, is the person responsible for Bradblog, and he's joining us now to talk a little bit about this and other things. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Brad Friedman. Good to be here, Doug. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, I was kind of surprised. Our, our mutual friend Eileen Proctor forwarded this thing that, you, that you'd put out about Yolo County, and that got uh, my attention right away because uh, the UC Davis, of course, is located in Davis in Yolo County. What's going on here with this voting development? Your elections director out there, Freddie Oakley, has announced that she will be uh, using this new system called VotePad. It's not a system. It's actually a device, uh, and folks can get more information at Vote hyphenpad.us, and I uh, recently wrote an article uh, a few days ago covering it, describing it as the uh, voting device that may just save American democracy. Uh, as you know, I've been covering the uh, electronic voting machine fiasco that we have going on in our country right now uh, that all began with this rather uh, cynical, and now we realize uh, rigged uh, sort of payment from Diebold to push forward this Help America Vote Act and force these unsecure, unaccountable, unrecountable, hackable electronic mm -hmm. voting machines into every jurisdiction in America. And uh, there have been one problem after another with these machines. They are, in fact, now confirmed to be hackable. There was a, uh, a, a test election just prior to the end of the year that 
uh, down in Leon County, Florida, that revealed that these Diebold machines could be hacked without a trace left behind. An entire mock election was flipped. Let's talk about that. That didn't get a lot of publicity in the national media, but I think you and a few other people covered the fact that they did a demonstration down in Florida that really raised eyebrows and shocked people. Yeah, it sure did. It shocked the election director down there, Ion Sancho, who uh, invited these folks in who had uh, claimed that they were able to hack Diebold optical scan machines uh, through uh, a, a little trick that they were able to place on the memory card. And, in fact, they had a uh, test election where the question was a very simple yes or no question. Can Diebold machines be hacked via the memory card? <laughs> Six folks voted no. Uh-huh. Two votes, two folks voted yes. Mm-hmm. So they knew what the outcome would be, you know, prior to printing out the results. When they printed out the results, guess what? Seven had voted yes, <laughs> one had voted no. Uh, now they knew that it was, so the election was completely flipped because they knew what the results should have been in the first place. And then, in fact, uh, when they checked the machines, there was no trace of this hack. They did all the normal procedures to open and close an election. And, you know, when they started, it showed zero votes, etc. So it was rather stunning, and the election director down there, Ian Sancho, said we will never use Diebold in another election at that point. And uh, other counties have, and states have since followed suit. Uh, Volusia County in Florida, St. Louis County in Missouri, California then ended up sending back their Diebold machines uh, to the feds for further certification, because the trick that was used to uh, hack this mock election, uh, took advantage of some code in Diebold software, which is banned. It's not allowed by the Help America Vote guidelines. But somehow or another, what do you know, it got through. So it, it was pretty remarkable, and it, in fact, has gotten coverage now in the national media. Washington Post just last Sunday uh, covered this story for the first time, and they also mentioned the uh, Nonpartisan Governmental Accountability Office, the GAO office, their report that came out about three months ago saying that, in fact, all the things that folks like myself have been saying for so long, that these machines are not uh, secure and that they can be hacked and that ballot definitions are all screwed up and that, in fact, thousands of votes have been lost in recent elections. This report came out, by the way, it was astounding because it was a nonpartisan report. It was accompanied by a bipartisan press release, uh, but from folks in Congress lauding it, and yet not one mainstream newspaper or wire service covered this report, even you know to say it came out. Right. So we're fighting an uphill battle against the media as well on this thing. But at least it looks like they're starting to get it now because, as I said, Washington Post came out with their story mentioning both the hack and the GAO report last Sunday. And there will be more, uh, my sources tell me, coming very soon from the mainstream media on all of this. Well, Brad, you know, we were warning our listeners before the election this sort of thing could happen. I, I gather y- you were doing likewise. We, now, I should note out that, that Ms. Oakley here um, in Yolo County has been here on KDVS. She's been on Speaking in Tongues with Richard Estes and Ron Glick. We haven't had her on our show, but uh, Richard and Ron have been on the case. What do you know about this? Uh, how this is going to work in Yolo County? I, I noticed on your on your uh, your website 
that it talks about how this is going to be a vote pad for people with disabilities, but everyone will use it, and it won't involve any software. You need- uh, exactly. Actually, I'm, I'm not sure that everyone will use it. One of the, but one of the, restrict, one of the mandates of HAVA is that yeah. there now be one uh, disabled, accessible voting device in every uh, voting precinct. So uh-huh. uh, naturally, what they've been pushing folks to do is to buy these touchscreen voting machines, which really many in the disabled community don't like at all for a number of reasons. So add to that the fact that they're unsecure and hackable and so forth. Then comes VotePad along, which is an incredibly simple device. It's basically a plastic overlay. You take the original ballot that can then be uh, hand-counted or optical scanned, and you, and you slide it inside this plastic sleeve, and what do you know? Blind folks can now uh, feel the ballot to know exactly where they're voting. Uh, folks who have other disabilities that make it hard for them to fill in the circle uh, are, are helped by these, uh, these plastic sleeves that tell them exactly where the uh, uh, ballot needs to be filled in. There's no electronic moving parts. It, there's no secret software like we have with all these other devices, and it costs about a tenth of what uh, the electron- a similar electronic device might cost. I believe Freddie Oakley actually said that the uh, money that she was planning to allocate just to store the electronic machines will, in fact, pay for five years' worth of, uh, of VotePad devices for wow. the county. So it's a huge money-saving device. It allows us to, you know, keep uh, retain a transparent democracy that can be recountable, and um, it's a small company, VotePad, but they seem to suddenly be getting a lot of attention because nobody in California or even around the country knows what the heck they're going to do to meet these HAVA mandates right. now that it's uh, confirmed that all of these machines are, are terrible and unsecure and hackable. Brad, we're going to have to get put a call in to, to Freddie Oakley to get her to, to talk more about this. And we need to have you come back and talk about some more of these issues. Uh, I know a lot of our listeners would like to maybe uh, know more about your site. Can you kind of give us a plug on that? Uh, yes, bradblog.com. Uh, so I have been keeping an eye on this, reporting on what's going on, reporting on those liars over at Diebold. Yeah, you got a radio uh, show, too, I noticed. Here, looking at you. I do, indeed. The yeah. Brad Show. You can go to bradshow.com. For more information on that, uh, fighting the same fight there. These guys, Diebold and ESMS, the two largest voting machine companies, they count more than 80% of America's votes, and they support only one political party, and they all use secret software and don't allow Americans to have confidence in elections because of these uh, this secret proprietary software that they use. I encourage folks to check out bradblog.com, learn what they can, and then get out there and make noise because we really, really need the citizens here. Brad Friedman, thank you for speaking with us. We look forward to collaborating more on this issue because we're with you on this, and we think that uh, the, the, the more we can beat the drum, the more, uh, the more the public will benefit from, well, just being informed. Indeed. We have to get the word out. Thank you, sir, for doing that, and I'll be happy to come back and talk to you about this stuff anytime. All righty. All right, let's talk a bit about uh, politics and the weather, oddly enough. Uh, You may have noted that uh, a top 
climate scientist at NASA, said a few days back that the Bush administration has tried to stop him from speaking out since he gave a lecture last month calling for prompt reductions in emissions of greenhouse gases linked to global warming. James Hansen, longtime director of the agency's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, said in an interview that officials at NASA headquarters had ordered the public affairs staff to review his coming lectures, papers, posting on the Goddard website, and requests for interviews from journalists. Hansen said he would ignore the restrictions. We have an email from Eileen Proctor in Los Angeles who sent us an article that appeared in Raw Story by Larissa Alexandrovna, which noted the Department of Commerce has issued a blanket media policy to employees of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, requiring that all requests for contacts from national media be first approved by the department. According to a leaked September 29th email memo sent out to NOAA staff, including employees of the National Weather Service, both of which are under the Department of Commerce, employees must collect information from reporters and forward it to the department. Apparently, employees must obtain the name of the reporter and their affiliation, their deadline and contact phone number, the name of the individual being requested to give the interview, the purpose of the interview, the expertise of the required interviewee on the subject. The National Weather Service's Regional Public Affairs Director, Jim Teat, who sent the policy email memo, said the latest policy is merely a way to coordinate the message. Mr. Teat, by the way, provided support in 1999 for spokeswoman Karen Hughes's defense of then-Governor George W. Bush's National Guard record, claiming that training constituted, quote, active duty, unquote. NOAA employees, speaking under conditions of anonymity, said, this is a big change in our policy with the media. This comes all the way down from the Department of Commerce indicating that such media decisions were formally made at the local level. In other words, in the past, this didn't have to go up the chain of command for approval. And let's close this segment with the item from uh, John Haleprin in the Associated Press, noting uh, about a week ago that six former heads of the Environmental Protection Agency, five Republicans and one Democrat, accused the Bush administration of neglecting global warming and other environmental problems. I don't think there's a commitment in this administration, said William Ruckelshaus, the EPA's first administrator when it began in 1970 under Richard Nixon and who headed it again under Reagan in the 80s. Russell Train, who succeeded Russell House under Nixon and Ford, said that slowing the growth of greenhouse gases isn't enough. We need leadership, and I don't think we're getting it, he said at an EPA-sponsored symposium. To sit back and just push it away and say we'll deal with it sometime down the line is dishonest to the people and self-destructive. It's too darn hot. It's too darn hot. I'd like to sup with my baby tonight. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. I'd like to sup with my baby tonight and play the pup with my baby tonight. But I ain't up to my baby tonight cause it's too darn hot. 
It's too darn hot. It's too darn hot. I'd like to stop for my baby tonight and blow my top with my baby tonight. I'd like to stop for my baby tonight and blow my top with my baby tonight, but I'd be a flop with my baby tonight. Cause it's too darn hot. Hot.